I would also like to point out that we have all three fire sign representation oh, in this Honestly, yeah. like Woo! you truly and love to else. see it. <laughs> yeah. Get nothing but fire on this. <laughs> nothing but fire. That's right. Yep. Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that knows that all good literature is actually gay literature. That's right. It's a mental puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) Today we have Zoe, Laura, and Kellen. Ooh, we have a special guest today as well to talk about mm-hmm. all things queer literature. You, I was going to give a little disclaimer that this episode might be particularly nerdy, but then I was thinking about like everyone on the coven is a huge fucking nerd, so unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> Unless this is your first episode, in which case, welcome. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> so our special guest, you may know her from her own podcast, Ogres and Organizing, or you may know her from her very brief cameo on our <laughs> Navigating Bisexuality episode, which was something like, hey, Megan's here. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's my little recap of that. You also might know her as the listener who sent me the bad girl tarot deck that I requested. Mm-hmm. You may also know her from being just the best human, um, a prime Leo. You know, we I feel like we don't have a lot of Leo representation in general, so we love to see it. <laughs> and um, also, if you know me at all, you know that I'm obsessed with farm prom and that Megan was part of Farm Prom 2.0 at the Minnesota State Fair. And she bared with me when I was like, let's all go into a sketchy haunted house at the Minnesota State Fair. And, you know, she and I are still friends, which honestly makes her a champion. So welcome, Megan. Hi. <laughs> what an Sorry. intro. I'm just remembering people jumping out at us and I'm having some flashbacks to that haunted house. I know. Well, Which honestly, is- like, I think I was just, like, personally feeling, like, a lot of things at that time. And I was like, why not throw myself into a much more uncomfortable situation, but also help me forget my feelings right now? And so let's like go into this Minnesota State Fair haunted house where people are jumping out at us and being really creepy and like us just like holding each other close, essentially, because (laughs) we could not handle it. We could not. (laughs) No, exactly. But, you know. Here we are, we survived, and honestly, we're thriving now. (laughs) Yeah, and we're here to talk about queer literature, so... That's right. Only good things. Yes. Yeah. So, now that there's really anything left to say after that intro, but, (laughs) Megan, is there anything you would like to add about yourself? Uh, Sure. Um, So, I have an MFA in creative writing um, from Hamlin University. I focus on fiction, um... And poetry, creative nonfiction exists, and I may write some of that, but I like to not think about it. So. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I guess just like I have, a, you know, an intimate relationship with queer literature because I am bisexual. And when, when you're queer, you have, you see things from a different lens. Um, and I was, I was late coming to terms with my bisexuality. So um, a part of my coming out to myself and into the world um, 
is was relating my life to what I read. Um, mm-hmm. I had a professor in grad school who told me that the books we gr- read growing up, those we read of our own volition, not the ones assigned, necessarily assigned by school, but the ones that we adored and we picked up on our own, um, are reflected in how we write and how we see the world. And so I went, I went, I went back and reviewed my books and and my favorite authors and w- read them through a totally new lens of queerness and representation um and i was able to see queer coded characters and find space for myself within the books that i love jane austen in particular is one of my favorite writers um and we'll talk about i'm going to talk about that a lot uh, <laughs> yes but like i do a lot of research like regarding like jane austen's work and queer coding in her time and her feminist uh writing so hell yeah that's my background, I guess. That's awesome. awesome. I'm um, excited to have you. Yes. I thought that we could go around and say our favorite queer or like queer coded books um, to start if we wanted to. Um, just because I feel like it's kind of fun. And also it gives maybe our listeners a way to approach these books if they, you know, it's like a place to start. <laughs> um but I actually wanted to comment on something you said of like, of how we view books. Like, I think when I was still dating men, uh, which isn't something I no longer do, but uh, when I was still dating men, I, part of like my guide to survival was reading tons of queer books. Um, and that like helped me feel seen and helped me feel like really alive within uh what otherwise was like a straight uh seemingly straight relationship and so yeah that just resonates with me a lot and so I appreciate you saying that does anyone want to start with their favorite queer books or do you want me to start (laughs) go for it Laura Um, Well, honestly, I feel like I'm obsessed with all queer books. I really love queer representation in in young adult fiction. I love the book that became the movie Love, Simon. Mm, Yes. And the follow-up to it, which is from his best friend's perspective, who is a, a young woman who is bi, which I'm forgetting the name of now, which is awful. But I do love all, like, I love particularly the way that young adult fiction approaches queerness because there's such a, like, self-discovery part to it, which I think is something we can all identify with, even if we're not young adults. (laughs) Um, Because living in a heteronormative society makes it really hard to come to terms with your queerness, as, you know, Megan was saying also. I definitely you know, being turning 30 this year, it's like, I only really came to terms with like my full queerness in the last couple of years. So, um, but my favorites of recent, uh, reading have been two graphic novels, both by the same author, Tilly Walden, which I've kind of mentioned on other episodes, but, um, one is called On a Sunbeam, which is, my absolute favorite. I'm obsessed with it. And then there's a second one called Are You Listening? And Tilly Walden is just an incredible queer author. 
And I never really got into graphic novels or comics until I dated someone who was really into it and showed me a lot of queer comics and how that representation can show up in that way. And so I don't know if we would consider it literature. I know it's like a little bit genre bending, I guess. But I do love how there's like a visual representation of queerness as well. And particularly for Tilly Walden, um, she does a lot with like gender and sexuality and race. And I love that all of that is represented in her work. So highly recommend Are You Listening and On a Sunbeam. Um, so I don't know. It would be hard for me to pick like a favorite. I'm, I'm not great at generally picking favorites. But I will say that what I'm reading right now is um, a classic of queer literature and sort of one of the foundational texts of um, like uh, out like openly sort of queer literature, which is Stone Butch Blues. Mm. Um, and uh, let me tell you, it is incredibly depressing. And if you're looking for a book that describes uh, police brutality against um, people who are gender non-conforming in a variety of ways uh, in like the 50s and 60s, sort of before the gay rights movement, boy, do I have the book for you. Um, if you're looking to feel sad and empty, I also have the book for you and it's the same book. So, um, anyway, but it is really good. Uh, and I think is, it's a really like humbling and, um, harrowing thing to read and something that I, it's, it's, I think important for young gay people and particularly gay women, um, to check out because it does give you a sense of like what our foremothers had to go through. So for sure, that's my pitch for, my really, um, I think I think I probably sold a lot of people on it. My <laughs> encouraging, exciting pitch for uh, Stone Butch Blues. So my favorite queer book is also YA fiction, Laurette. Um, and it is a self-published book. Uh, it's a series, actually. And it's about a made-up sport. Um, and it has uh, three of the best queer characters I've seen. I've read that just uh, and well written. Um, it's called uh, The King's Men by um, Nora Sakovic. Um, the series is called The Foxhole Court. Um, and the primary character is a demisexual, which we don't have a lot of representation of anywhere, really. Um, and it just, uh, the book does a great job of going, of developing a, a relationship between two people and, um, you know, taking some of the really darker aspects of things that people go through. I will say that there is, um, in the second book, there is a trigger warning for, and, and it's discussed throughout, uh, but for rape and um, abuse. So, um, but it handles it in a way that I haven't seen um, a lot and, and that's something that I find a lot in my writing is I also write um, about survivors and it just, yeah, the book really touches me. I mean, even if you don't like sports, this trilogy has a huge online following um, and it just has immersed in, there's great art being made from it. I'm just people coming, connecting with it and about coming out and just existing and I love it so much. Just to clarify, if you are looking for a book to read that does not have uh, just like pretty vivid descriptions of sexual assault, um, do not read Stone Butch Blues. Thank you. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good. <clarification>. Really important <laughs> caveat. Need to put that out there. Again, deeply disturbing. Zoe. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> Going back to what Laura was saying about young adult fiction. So when I was in middle school, I became obsessed with reading like gay boy books. Mm-hmm. Um, I read like Boy Meets Boy and the Rainbow Boys series. I forget mm. the names of the other ones. There's like Rainbow Road, Rainbow High. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. I know. Yeah, I can so I picture really the covers that. of them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. And I think I knew it was bi at the time. I don't know. I don't know when I really like knew, but I had a huge crush on Harriet the Spy when I was like four. So I didn't not know. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, I don't know if it was just, like, that there weren't a lot of, like, queer, like, girl adult fiction at the time, or I don't know why. I just really liked reading about gay men, like, teens. So, mm-hmm. anyway, um, at this point, I mostly read nonfiction, um, but there is this book. I was briefly in a queer book club, and we read um, Ruby, Fu- Ruby Fruit Jungle, which is from the 70s, and it's about a woman, like, discovering her sexuality, um, I did leave that book club because they were too lib and they would not accept any of my radical suggestions. So, <laughs> so left that for difference of opinion. Um, some other books though, that are nonfiction that I really like this book. Um, I'm afraid of men by Vivek Shreya, who is a trans woman and it's endorsed by Tegan and Sarah. So take that as you will. Um, and it's just a lot about like, kind of dealing with, like, masculinity um, and femininity, like, as she transitioned. Uh, So that's really good. And this other one I wanted to recommend, which is called Israel slash Palestine and the Queer International. Mm. Um, So it's by Sarah Shulman, who was invited. She's Jewish. She was invited to Israel to speak in this, like, LGBT um, studies conference. And while she was there, like, kind of had uh, an epiphany seeing like what was happening with the occupation um and now is you know a a palestinian uh an advocate for palestinian rights and ending the israeli occupation um but a lot of that is kind of it's told through like she's like an lgbt studies person it's told through kind of yeah like gay and queer international studies so yeah oh amazing yeah, I thought we could start maybe by just kind of going over a general overview of what queer representation looks like in literature. Um, yeah, so queer representation in literature, I mean, comes in multiple ways, overt queer characters or queer coded storylines. And we see it where we want to see it. We see it where, where we can, where we find images of, of things where we can input ourselves into the characters. I mean, and that's, I think, the main goal of fiction in the first place is to make the reader either identify somewhat with the characters or to learn and understand something either within themselves or understand something about someone else. And um, there's this uh, great article called uh, The the default reader and the model of queer reading and writing strategies or the obituary of the implied writer. Um, And it goes into detail about like the default reader being a heterosexual white person for almost all fiction and um, how 
in, with queerness, we have we read things from a, a different lens, um, and we create an implied reader for queerness. Um, it's by Hannah Kubitz. I really recommend reading it. And today it's a lot easier to go and you can find, you know, you can go online to and basically type in LGBTQ books and find a whole list of, you know, the best books coming out in the year of which I have one for at the end of this because mm, yes, I'm very excited for what's coming out this year um, <laughs> and things that have been published in the past. And then, you know, then you get into the books where, um, you know, you go back further and then you look at Oscar Wilde, um, the picture of Dorian Gray, where there is mm. no overt queerness, but the coding of the characters, the discussion, the sexuality of the writer comes into play and we're able to um, relate the themes of it to the experience of queerness and sexuality and gender and um, find ourselves within that and and the the difference in and the the queerness of of the writing and of existing really yeah yeah so i also so i want to read this quote from sean o'connor who wrote this book called straight acting popular gay drama from wild to radigan mm-hmm. um radigan being another um British writer who wrote characters that were very queer coded, who was also gay. And anyway, so the, the quote is, uh, queer readers are practiced at interpreting art, never taking anything at face value and locating themselves within text that seems superficially to exclude them. We have had no choice but to read ourselves into works about heterosexual relationships. Um, the effects of having been pushed to the fringes so far for so long and having to be in hiding and and scared for our lives and who we are and, and the shame and, and the guilt that comes with queerness and sexuality and gender. Um, we have to find ourselves in places where it, we appear to not exist because we do exist. Um, you know, there are characters whose, whose circumstances in fiction um, and queer-coded behavior that resonate so deeply within the queer community because... We're able to, we're able to see from a different lens. We're able to see it from the lens of there's something more here that is hidden because it's not accepted in polite society. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of my uh, general view of, of queer representation. Yeah. Um, I was having a discussion with my sister. Um, my older sister Jamie is. Um, an out lesbian. She has been since I was very young. She came out when she was 15. She's very comfortable with her her identity as a butch lesbian. Um, Mm. She came out by sitting our parents down and making them watch the movie The Truth About Jane, um, (laughs) which was probably like her and I watched, like had watched it together. And it was also sort of how she like officially come out to me. And she's like, I feel like this. And I was like, yeah, cool. Yeah, and I so I was talking to her about books that were important to me um, that re- had ex- either explicitly queer characters or queer coded characters, um, and I realized that many of them were given to me by her. Mm. Um, and so I asked her like, what books are most important to you when she was coming out? And um, she mentioned one of my favorite books and definitely one of my favorite movies, uh, Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop by Cafe by Fanny Flagg. Um, 
that was made into a movie. It's phenomenal. Yes, um, I watched it two days ago because Megan told me to, and it was a wild <laughs> ride. Wow. We can get into that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it just, it, this story is so much, like, as a woman and a queer woman, like, it's a story that has power and strength in being a woman and knowing yourself and finding community and unity and things and, and being different. Um, it goes into to race. It's set it's set in two different time zones um, in the early '90s, and then also in the uh, the '60s in in the South during um, in Alabama, uh, you know, during Jim Crow era. And there there's no overt overt queer characters, um, but one of the the main characters, Iggy, who I love and adore. Um, is queer coded as tomboy through the whole thing. And... Yeah, I feel like it's almost overt. Like she's asked if she has any, like if there's any men she's interested in, and she just kind of like laughs and is like, "Well, there's men that are interested in me." <laughs> <laughs> the classic gay conundrum. <laughs> and she's in love with her brother's girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, who is also she, who is high femme, and and we see go through many horrible things in the movie and in the book and you know they end up together well they they move in together but she does uh, spoiler alert uh die so there's a, there's a lot of sadness in this story but yeah well I kind of felt like they killed her off because of the queer coding like there were so many like flirty moments between the two women they're like living together like raising a child that was uh roots with like her previous husband um and i feel like the only thing they could do is like make them actually end up together and be gay or they're like well too bad because she died first yeah mm. <laughs> you can't come out and say it yeah you know <laughs> there's only so much so far that you can go before yeah that's like the only other thing they could do with her yeah we hate to it. see it they also their faces get so close to kissing multiple times in the movie and i was like just screaming <laughs> I was like, make out, you coward! <laughs> it <was fun. laughs> Amazing. It's like, so I read it, so it's been a long time since I, I read the, I read the book when I was probably 13, and then I've seen the movie so many times since then, but it's been, like, maybe over five years since I watched the movie, and when you, try, like, think on things and try to build, rebuild memories around the story, it's like, I was rebuilding it in my head, and I'm like, oh, these are, they're, like, together, like, this is a lesbian couple, that I'm seeing yeah. in the film. And then it's like, I rewatched it. And I'm like, oh, right. They they weren't, though. <laughs> like, right. not not in an overt way that... But to me, you know, it's to anyone who can look at it in that lens, who can, can see between, you know, read between the lines, you know, these are queer characters. They're, they're people who are seen as queer, you know, just from their lifestyle, from the choices they make that are against the heteronormative white patriarchal norms. And and it's just fabulous. So if you haven't read it or seen the movie, both I like both are very good. So, you know, you don't always get great adaptations of books into movies, uh, especially queer. Like, um, I was thinking about Love, Simon, um, actually, Laura, mm. because the best friend in the movie, she's not queer. Oh, she's, I know. She, she's straight in the movie. And it's just like, 
what's happening? I <laughs> why know. is this the case? like why and and I th- feel like you see it you see it more often with women queer characters yes. wherein um Leah, Leah on the offbeat is the second yes. book. I couldn't remember. Oh my god. But yeah. Wherein we don't have as much overt representation because a lot of the representation that is for uh, gay characters in fiction are white male characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the queerness of women is often erased and it's brought down to these bonds of friendship and sisterhood and well, it's just like where the patriarchy shows up. It's like, yeah, I was I went out last night with this girl I've been seeing and we went to this like queer event that was um, like a dance event. And it was we were like maybe one of five women there or two of five women rather. And <laughs> uh I was asking her, I was like, there's not more gay men than there are gay women in Buffalo. So, like, what is the deal? And she just was like, this is a fucking patriarchy. Like, it's still going to center cis men and it's still going to center whiteness. And it's almost like we have to work twice as hard to create spaces for women. And I know that's, like, kind of a bit of a divergence from queer literature, but I think it it has, like, real ramifications in our lives as well. Definitely. I mean, there's a, a, you know, in the, in the publishing community now, there's a huge conversation going on about representation with, um, with race and gender and ethnicity and cultural and, and who has the right, the right or to read, to write a story for someone else, um, with American dirt right now. And, um, that, you know, that happens a lot with queer writing is that where we're getting these, gay character um especially in in romance um in in the romance genre that you get a lot of straight white women cisgendered writing gay male characters with their their overt gay male characters but they're not truly queer they're two male characters and they're written into gendered female male gender dynamics and heteronormative gender dynamics yeah there's also a great um electriclit.com has a great essay about that can't remember the name of that article right now but it is really great in fact electriclit.com which if you don't know about electricliterature.com has a lot of uh queerer and poc authors writing um great articles about literature and poetry and it's just fantastic and it's a great resource and you should check it out hell yeah um so uh, I guess I should talk about my favorite thing in the world, which is Jane Austen. Yes. Um, Yay. <laughs> it's the like the most important places I found a connection w- with queerness is in Jane Austen. Um, and I think one of the reasons is, is because she is so often touted as being like the pe- up on a pedestal of like heteronormative relationships, mm-hmm. which I hate because... It, her writing is so much more than Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, Emma and Mr. Knightley, mm-hmm. Eleanor and Edward Ferris. You know, it's she writes these beautifully rounded women yeah. characters that have these bonds and relationships with other women that are 
so phenomenal and, and so different and ranging. There's a great article published in The Atlantic um, called Queering the Work of Jane Austen is Nothing New. At the, and with a subtitle, starting in the Victorian era, stage performers and writers have been subverting the novelist's reputation as the go-to conventional um, heterosexual love. Um, it's written by Devani Lucer, who also wrote the very fun book, The Making of Jane Austen. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't call... So, People who follow Jane Austen often call themselves Janeites. I don't do that because I don't believe in having a a, a name of <laughs> of a fan. Like totally, I love her, but I'm not like I don't know. Yeah, I nothing against Janeites. They're lovely people. Um, it's just not something I identify as. Uh, but anyway, this so this essay goes into details about how Austen's work has. Austin's work has become subversive um, and how the queer community has found space um, in coding different characters for representation and that it's been going on for centuries. It's been been practice um, when in, in the late um, 19th century, her books were being performed um, in different gender um, expectations. Mr. Darcy was being performed by a woman we're seeing Miss, you know, um, we're seeing Mr. Elton from Emma, who is a highly queer coded character as actually being queer. Um, there's just so much, um, so much being done with her work because there's so much room for queerness because she, I mean, she is all, it, there's a debate about whether or not she herself is queer. Um, she never married. Um, there are journal writings of, about her sleeping with women. Um, so I consider her a queer person. Um, yo, if if there's journal writings of her sleeping with women, that's it. Like, what else do we need? What are we talking about? Exactly. Uh, You know, (laughs) she's sorry. Sorry about it. But like, sorry, but Jane Austen was a lesbian. Yes. (laughs) We had to say it. You know, it had to be said. (laughs) Come for me if you like, but that's how it is. If anyone comes for you, you got a shit ton of fire signs coming for them. So (laughs) (laughs) we will roast you. That's what we do. So yeah, Jane Austen was gay. And And that's that. That's that. Um, (laughs) But so going forward um there's so much between the relationships um in the characters um in sisterhood i have five sisters so pride and prejudice was like Mm. basically seeing myself like an overbearing mother with a bunch of sisters and different uh different personalities trying to gauge them and like figure out your place in society and, and what your expectations are and also who you love and and why you love people and to build connection, you know, and to to not have prejudice against someone, to not make firsthand judgments. And if you do give space to for people to change mm-hmm. and uh, what's more queer than that, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I love I just love it so much. And I and speak and 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 continue with Pride and Prejudice. Um, there's a relationship that for me is probably one of the most queer coded, and that is and who I'm kind of obsessed with, and that's the character of Charlotte, um, who is Lizzie's best friend, and she is considered a spinster, and homely, and 
I hate that, you know, Mm -hmm. all women are beautiful. Um, But she ends up marrying a ridiculous man because she's got no other choice. You know, she's a burden to her parents. She's reached a certain age. There's no chance that she'll ever get anyone that will ask her again to be married. And it's, you know, the choice that you had back then is you get married or you you go into work and you become a governess and you take care of someone else's children. Mm. And it's wonderful. me, And I have been looking, you know, I continuously look for more information on the, the character of Charlotte because I feel like that is... That is something that has happened to so many women who have had been, since humanity has existed, been forced into relationships with men when they have no other options mm. because of, the, you know, the patriarchy has set it up for a way that women are dependent on men for everything they need to survive. And yeah, we should do something about that. We really should. Um, yeah, we really should. And I would like for Charlotte to be the like starting point of that discussion because she's one of my favorite <laughs> characters of all time and I love her. Yes, Lizzie is great, but Charlotte is the true hero. So <laughs> there's also in Austin's work, um, Emma is opinionated and independent and says time and time again that she has no need to marry. So why should she? She has everything she needs in the world. She's independent. She has no need for a man. And her entire just being, it just is so powerful and everything she says, you know, and then of course, yes, she does marry a different, uh, marry a man at the end, but it's the way she builds friendships with other women and the way she relies on herself to be independent and to make opinions for herself about what she needs in the world Um, and going and, and going out into the world. A big theme is, is about Emma leaving the town she's grown up in and, and never been outside of and seeing different places and opening herself up to new things. And she's just, she's beautiful. I love Emma. Um, Also, Probably one of the first women um, I was ever in love with was Ramo Lagari when she did that BBC adaptation of uh, Emma, which if you haven't seen, it's phenomenal. She's beautiful. I just mm. want to play with her hair all the time. <laughs> so. <laughs> I feel like there's also a lot of like, which we're going to get into uh, Little Women, but that that's also a theme that we see with Joe, um, where yes. it's like, you know there's this like why would I need to fucking marry that doesn't make any sense so that's kind of like that pushing against of it but I know we're gonna sorry to rush your beautiful uh Jane Austen vibes but we do I think need to move on to a a slightly different side of things that Kellen was gonna talk about Uh, yes yeah so um as you know, as Megan established, there's um, a lot of queer coding that goes on that is one way for writers to um, kind of push back against the constraints that society is putting on them and and, um, putting on their characters. So if you can't have a character be outwardly queer, you can um, write them in such a way that other queer people might recognize themselves in them without sort of setting off alarm bells for the general straight readership. The um, straights. And the straights. Um, <laughs> and yes, you hate to see it. Uh, <laughs> but 
that so that's that's sort of like one version of queer coding the other sort of um more insidious version of queer coding is the queer coded villain mm-hmm. which is frequently written not always though um which is important to keep in mind but frequently written by straight um authors and um there's a way in which in um it's it's this has been the case for a long time in a lot of books and movies um Queerness is sort of a shorthand for evil, or at least untrustworthiness. Um, having characteristics that might mark you as gay or the same characteristics that mark you as in some way sinister or threatening mm. um, is sort of the perspective that this uh, negative version of queer representation is taking. So to make a couple of examples, so I also have to confess that, um, well, I have read Pride and Prejudice, and that was years ago. I am not nearly as well-read as most of the people on this uh, podcast right now, and especially in terms of... I've just shit. seen all the movies, Kellen. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just nodding along, like, mm, yes, Charlotte. Megan yes. and I can uh, be the, the nerdy readers. <laughs> yes. Perfect. I... I will have to say I did take a semester in Scotland where I studied Jane Austen for for four months. There so you go. There's a whole thing. I, there. Like I have like a, a step up on that. Yeah, for sure. But yes, anyway, Colin. Yeah. So I was I was gonna. My references are gonna be. Um, uh, very lowest common denominator. So here we go. In terms of movies, Disney is like the classic case of um, coding its villains queer. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty much any Disney villain um, in their cartoons, at least, is going to be queer coded. Um, but to just pick a couple of za- examples, um, one of the first ones I thought of was Jafar from Aladdin, who's, um, you know, very tall and skinny. He's got these mannerisms that are sort of um, particular and uh, like, he's not partic- he's not a particularly masculine character, mm-hmm. um, unlike Aladdin, who's uh, shirtless and buff, Jafar <laughs> is like basically wearing a dress um, and is skinny and has this little tiny mustache and kind of moves his hands in a way that I'm doing that you can't see because this is a podcast. Um, but all of which everyone are knows of, what it looks like. Yeah, they get right. it. <laughs> it's all it's all supposed to evoke this kind of stereotypical gayness. Um, another example, this it's another sort of quintessential example is Ursula from The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm who is essentially an evil lesbian who lives by herself and tries to destroy the monarchy, um, which actually in some ways kind of makes her the hero, if you think about it. Um, But anyway, (laughs) Ursula's character design, this is like a little little fun fact, um, was actually inspired by Divine, who was one of America's most famous drag performers at the time that The Little Mermaid was being made. and uh, by the way, I should also note, um, Disney is still doing the queer coded thing like 30 years after The Little Mermaid came out. Uh, anybody who has watched Moana knows that Lin-Manuel Miranda plays a covetous evil crab who is deeply queer coded. You love to see it. Mm. Um in terms of literature, and I actually I do think it's it's particularly important to note that these are all everything that I'm referencing right now is is made for children. So this is something that kids are getting like like you know injected straight into their veins from yeah. like the moment of birth. Um, is this a sort of equivalence between sinister villainy and um, queerness? So the indoctrination of sorry. The indoctrination of homophobia. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, I hate to talk bad about J.K. Rowling because I'm sure we 
Potterheads in our audience. No, uh, literally, fuck J.K. Rowling. I loved Harry Potter and still like appreciate the books, but she's a fucking cunt. <laughs> a trans- she's a turf. Like, what are we talking about? Anyway. Yeah, yeah clearly joking. I Sorry. have no regrets about uh, saying anything negative about J.K. Rowling. So Perfect. Here we go. Um, so she plays into a lot of queer coding tropes as well, um, even if they're not as like obvious as um, some of her other tropes, e.g. the uh, like the very clearly Jewish um, goblins who control all of the money in the yeah. Harry Potter world. Um, but yeah, so one example is the werewolf Fenrir Greyback. Uh, and his main role in the books is he's employed by Lord Voldemort to attack and infect children with lycanthropy, um, which is basically a direct translation into a magical world of the 1980s myth of evil gays who would seduce young people. Or um, also another version of this would just would be to just prick themselves with a pin and then go around stabbing people with pins um, in order to spread HIV AIDS. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like, it's bad. Um, another another thing is, I think you could make the argument that Voldemort himself is queer-coded. He's vain, he's lisping, he's obsessed with a boy. Um, he's uh, not at all, he's made to be very feminine in a lot of ways. There's, there's sort of no masculinity to the character of Voldemort. He's missing his nose. He's got these big eyes, no nose. In some ways, he's like a Disney princess in that sense. Mm. Um, yeah, so we've got queer-coded Voldemort, I think. Um, and so with all that being said, and, you know, as both Laura and Megan have sort of already established, um, even when the queer-coded character is a villain, gay people have found ways to celebrate that representation. Like, gay people find ways to, to put themselves in these, you know, books and movies, even when the, the options are as slim as Voldemort and Jafar. Um, and so it's kind of no wonder actually that like, particularly Ursula, like gay men have celebrated and loved Ursula for a really long time. Um, she is one of the most, like, she is a really popular character to play in drag performances, which again is not surprising given that she's based off a drag performer. Mm-hmm. Um, there is gay fan fiction about Voldemort and Snape on the internet, which you could not pay me to read. Sure. Um, I mean, actually, if you want to pay me to read it. Let me know, and if you have a like a high enough offer, I, I will read it. I'm not <laughs> um, but I will not enjoy it. Uh, and I think the that top like, tier on our Patreon is now just uh, recording ASMR of Kellen reading oh Snape God. fanfic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like a thousand dollars a month. I'm I'm willing to go go in. Uh, and yeah, I think like you know thinking about like people from our from our generation are being sort of the people that are recording here. Like we didn't grow up with queer icon Marceline the Vampire Queen um, from Adventure Time on our TVs, but a lot of people did protect uh, project themselves onto characters like Shigo, who is the extremely hot and obviously lesbian villain in Kim Possible. Mm. Um, and I think that that speaks in a lot of ways to the resiliency of queer people and like the ability that we've had to develop um, and grow and nurture our own joy in like a deeply hostile world and to even like to make heroes out of villains to find the good in them so that they too can be celebrated, I think is like a deeply, a, a deeply queer experience um, and, and one 
that unfortunately people still have to continue to to experience um, because the landscape remains kind of bleak. Yeah. Yeah, I also want to add Katra from She-Ra into oh, the kind of yeah. Shigo character of um, hot lesbian villains. Katra can <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Katra's hot. It, I don't know what to tell you. It's canon. Um, we did have Sailor Moon, so that's good. That's true. That's true. Although, mm-hmm. if you watched, some of the, the gay stuff was edited out of, like, the American. Of the American version, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. You love to see it. Yeah, I also wanted to add, speaking of Disney villains that are actually queer heroes, um, I recently watched the new Maleficent called Maleficent Mistress of Evil, and it is so good. Like, I hate Disney. In college, I wrote, like, a 10-page research paper about why I hate Disney. Um, (laughs) But um, it is surprisingly good, and in the end, it was very, like, pro-witch and, like, pro-goth, and I cried, which I was not expecting, because I just felt very understood by this the <laughs> um <laughs> also the true love in it like kind of similar to in frozen people liked it because it was like the like sister love um and in maleficent it's really like the mother-daughter love that is like the core of that movie so i mm. the first maleficent is like okay if you saw it and you were like eh, i understand the second one is like a good movie okay oh I'll leave that. Amazing. <laughs> just to jump in on that zoe um i'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen the discourse about whether or not elsa from frozen is gay yes. and i actually do think so frozen 2 she's I'm like have i have yeah she basically has a girlfriend but she doesn't like they they don't go so far as to like kill anybody off like in fried green tomatoes but disney is doing its absolute best to be to like retain plausible deniability um and i even heard uh read about a um an interview with like one of the makers of frozen who was like um actually we don't think that elsa is like in a place for a relationship right now we did a myers-briggs test on her and her results came back And they said that she wasn't ready for a relationship. And I'm like, okay, bitch. First of all, no Myers-Briggs test results have anything to say about whether you're ready for a relationship. And if they did, every single man would be type not ready for a relationship. So, like, don't give me any of that. Half your princesses are, like, in a coma, but they're ready for relationships. Anyway, it's fine. No, that's actually something I wanted to say with Fried Green Tomatoes or when we talk about... Little Women, like the one of the other kind of um, tropes for queer characters is like, well, they're just alone forever. Like they actually don't want love. Right. Versus like being able to show. Right. We're uh, just not allowed to have love because we live in a straight hellscape. Yeah. Or that's one of the coding things. It's like, oh, well, like we don't know if they're gay, but like they never date anyone. So they might be. And it's like, okay, (laughs) well. um, Yeah. So switching gears a little bit because we are all uh, leftists here. I thought we could uh, talk a little about the how class analysis plays into queer representation and literature in general. Yeah, so um, Steve Velocki has this great um, article. It's on JSTOR, unfortunately. Um, talk about locking people out of uh, information and um, class differentials. But uh, it's called the class and 
reflected nature of the gay identity. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit of them from the abstract. Um, the idea of the homosexual as defined by the same-sex desire and essentialist notions of sexual identity was the outcome of an almost century-long process, external social control forces emanating from imperatives of reform capitalism combined with gender anxieties in the middle-class communities to privilege middle-class gay people and middle-class understandings of the same-sex desire. And basically it just goes into how a lot of the representation we see and why it's often middle-class, white, cisgendered gay men and not uh, transgender representation, person of color representation is because of the, the way that capitalism has formed the identity of like the gay identity and it really sucks. And yeah, I think we already talked about love Simon, um, which strikes me as sort of like the quintessential 2018 version of this. Um, Mm -hmm. it's a really cute, heartwarming story, but, and it's also like this, you know, the kid's only, like, problem, basically, is that he's gay. Um, And he doesn't really have to worry about much else. He lives in this giant-ass house. Um, He has friends uh, who are... He's got... There's a lot of, like, the, like, token representation in his friend group, but he himself is, like, a wealthy, white, like, able-bodied kid. Um, The... uh, I saw a tweet actually about it that was like, Love, Simon is a movie about a straight boy who happens to be gay. Um, and that was obviously <laughs> facetious, but I think that that it spoke to sort of like the the various ways in which he was like deeply privileged um, and had this sort of one, this one, one place on this like axis of oppression um, where it did really affect him. And, and that's not to say that like white men who are gay don't struggle with anything, but... Um, it, it's not the same thing as having um, representation of, of other, you know, other experiences on screen. Um, I mean, it's only one letter in our in, in the whole acronym, but <laughs> it also breaks down that this that capitalism and and has built this this class availability, whereas uh, queerness is seen as kind of like an extracurricular activity, just something fanciful that you can do when you you have money and you're rich and it's something that's acceptable you know because it's you have money it's you Mm. know um and that's like with a lot of like the representation has built is that if you have money it's okay to be gay but if you don't basically you're going to (laughs) there's not going to be any representation it's not okay it's not something you can do it's a choice and not a reality of who you are well and Um, i think that it like also you know, white men, white cisgendered men are able to access the most privilege through meritocracy as well, like through the ideal of like, if you work hard, you can achieve anything that's more accessible to white cis men. And like, if you're trans or if you're a woman um, and queer, there, it, it can affect your employment. It can affect a lot of things like, you know, we see what's going on in South Dakota right now of trans issues and things like this. And so it's just like, I think that class matters or like it all kind of feeds into each other as well. 
And I think it's just, it's like, of course you see this in queer representation in the same way that you see it in all other forms of media that like, as you were saying earlier, Megan, like there's an assumed audience, like an assumed neutral audience, which is the white, straight, cis, like man, basically. Um, and part of that is also like that having money is the the sort of normative um, neutral state that like a story about poor people won't necessarily appeal to everybody, but a story about like wealthy people is supposed to be like, that's the norm. And, and I like one of my favorite podcasts is the Bechtel cast. And they have a bit that they talk about where um, they're like all Christmas movies, all the like kids in Christmas movies live in giant houses. Um, and like, I think that that little bit is kind of representative of just like the way that media is. So in some ways, you know, I don't, it's not like particular to stories about queer people that like discussions about the lives of, of people who are privileged in any number of ways kind of rise to the top in terms of getting funding, getting picked up, getting produced, getting like advertised and sent out into the world. Um, and, you know, even like the people who have access to writing as a career, like, tend to be people from like you know have a uh, means like come from means because writing obviously is like uh very challenging it, it doesn't always pay a lot of money so if you can be like a full-time writer a lot of times that's just because you your parents can support you um and if those are the people that are writing the books that we get to read then like those are the perspectives that are you know, more frequently being put out into the world because they can afford to put those perspectives out. Um, and so, of, again, of course, that's going to filter into queer literature as well. And yeah. I, I think I, I want to say, like, I think that's why we spoke about Little Women a little bit. And I, I want to talk more about that is that Little Women, that the new adaption um, with Sorcy Rowan in it, um, I probably said her name wrong because Irish names are hard for me. Sirsha. Shirsha Rowan um, and Greta Gerwig. And, and the reason it's it's been touted is, I mean, it is so important to the queer community. And we've, uh, Zoe and I have talked about it a ton of times about like. Yeah, I'm seeing it for a second time, like today after we record, because this is the last week in theater. So everyone go. Yes. Uh, now no, I have to. Um, <laughs> and um, about how we, Zoe and I talked a little bit about how Joe is seen um, to the queer community as a queer character, um, despite the fact that she ends up with the, her teacher, um, or her tutor, whatever, um, because, and the reason she, she may not have access to, um, to understanding about, like, why she doesn't want to get married beyond, like, her career, and that being, like, the reason is that because the only interaction with other women that she's had have been relatives. So she, you know, she's not able to have that, that moment, that connection to other women, because it's all been like her, her class keeps her and the fact that her family is known as poor and, and, you know, she's got her rich relations, but it's money keeps us from being able to, to ex express ourselves, to be ourselves, because it keeps us in a hole. It holds us down. Capitalism has, is a system that is meant to repress all things that are different and that don't support the 1%. So, 
Yeah, and I know we're running low on time, but just a couple things that I wanted to add um, about Little Women. So it's mostly, it's a lot of it is autobiographical about Mm -hmm. Louisa May Alcott's life. And she, her editors did, like, she did not want Joe to get married in the end. And they were like, you can't have a character who's like a strong woman who does not end up married. And so they like really made her do that, which you kind of do see in the new adaptation with Greta Gerwig. She like shows parts of that. Um, uh, The other thing is her family, they were abolitionists and her, um, they were like along the underground railroad and like helped with it, but she wasn't able to write that in because at the time it would be dangerous. But that's another thing that like would be cool to see in newer adaptations now that they can show that. and it also just there's a lot of like kind of meta moments in it where they talk like the characters in the movie talk about how like well no one really cares about women's stories or like women's work um so yeah i don't know little women it's good and there's a lot of class things in it and i do think like the that aunt too yeah that yeah they have like the rich aunt who's horrible um, and she just like she judges all of the of her nieces for like not behaving within like the confines of society. Yeah. Yeah. And because um, when Lori proposes to Joe, he's like a very rich man and she says no. And that was like a big deal because that would have, I mean, at the time and still sometimes now, like when women have to get married for money and like to help their family. So her not wanting Joe to get married was like a very big deal at the time, which obviously is why it wasn't allowed to happen. But one thing that I love about Louise May Alcott is that she was like, okay, like you're forcing me to make Joe get married, but she's not marrying Lori because I'm not giving people the satisfaction they want. Mm. And I love that for her. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, characters not marrying. I think what I, what I love about Joe so much is it, not just her independence and that, you know, her queerness, but the the emotional attachment to like everything she feels her you know it and that's what it is it's just she's she's so full of emotion and about what she's going through and um you know i think everyone saw the loneliness scene and and the new adaptation and kind of died a little bit um because there's that feeling that's what the story yeah you know the story is not about women finding love or um but it, it's i mean it's the, about finding a man to marry you know um it's about what happens to you you know when you go through these things um when you're afraid to find love um and that's i it's so important i love little women um Dang. yeah me too well, we have to wrap up, but before we go, um, do you have any current favorite writers or like books coming out that you wanted to share? Also, this could be a question for all of you, if anyone has anything. Yes, I actually, so I have a little bit of a list because there's a lot of great queer fiction that's coming out this year. Um, Sarah Gailey um, has a, a book coming out called Upright Women Wanted. Um, it's about the future of the American Southwest is full of bandits, fascists, and a queer li- queer librarian spies on horseback trying to do the right thing. Oh, hell um, yeah. Oh my just God. sounds amazing. I'm so, so excited for it. Um, Brandon Taylor's uh, real, uh, book, first book, Real Life, is coming out. Um, it's a campus novel that focuses on interpersonal forces surrounding race, trauma, and queerness. So excited. It's been on so many lists. Can't wait for it. 
Um, Docile by K.M. Sparza comes out March 3rd. Um, it's a BDSM aspects to it um, with queer characters and set in a dystopian capitalist society. Mm. Um, and she, so they take the system um, of capitalism and drives a point home when you have no opportunities, when the system is built against you, there is no real free will. Um, mm. So excited for that. Yes. Um, Rowan Haseo Buchanan, um, Starling Days, um, a story about love, mythology, mental illness, uh, a Japanese beer, and the times we need to seek out a milder psychological climate. And it's basically about a bisexual female protagonist um, who's struggling with depression. And I'm so excited for it. Yes. um, Because that's basically my life. Um, And... Uh, then, then there's this collection called uh, Storytelling in Queer Appalachia that's coming out in July, um, Imagining and Writing the Unspeakable Other. Um, oh, and it, yeah, I've heard about this one. Yeah, it explores sexual identities in rural places, uh, community and individual meaning making among the Appalachian diaspora and t- uh, storytelling infrastructure of queer Appalachia and the role of metronormative and discourses of difference. Frick, I'm so excited yeah. for it. <laughs> There's so many great stuff. And this was just like, these are my top five that I'm really excited for, but there's so much coming out this year. And they're from writers that are queer. They're from writers that are people of color. Um, And I'm just stoked. Hell yeah. So um, what are you guys excited for? Or who are are your favorite writers right now? I'm currently going through an Ursula Le Guin phase, which is not new because Ursula Le Guin uh, just died. So none of these things are new. However, I did want to like throw in a little pitch um, for her as having queerness in her stories um, in a way that it's not frequently like the focus, but a lot of the societies that she invents are places where gender is essentially irrelevant, um, including one of her more famous books, um, The Left Hand of Darkness, in which uh, like the planet that she's writing about is full of humans, but they're genderless. Um, and so in addition, I think, and yeah, we could, I think we will be talking about sci-fi like as, as a genre in the future on this podcast, but like, I think sci-fi is a place where, because you have the opportunity to play with systems, um, stuff like gender and sexuality, um, can be just as much on the table as, you know, what kind of governmental system are you living in? What kind of economic system are you living in? Um, so definitely pitching Ursula Le Guin as a place that you're a person, you know, you can go to if you're interested in really rethinking, like, what does a world look like where, like, sexuality is a non-issue? What, what does a world look like where gender doesn't exist? Um, because there's some really good stuff there. Yeah. Um, kind of going off of what Kellen was saying, uh, my dear friend Emrys Donaldson is going to be on like a part two of Queer Lit, kind of focusing on uh, trans writers as well as um, science fiction, because that's what they uh, write. And um, I love everything that they write, and they are uh, finishing up a novel, so... Uh, yeah, I will just plug Emrys Donaldson. Love to see them, and they're going to be on an upcoming episode. Hell yeah. Um, I also will say about uh, sci-fi, I'm reading right now, uh, Jenny Fagan's The Sunlight Pilgrims is a post-apocalyptic story um, about a tra- um, with, where the protagonist is a transgender boy. I'm loving it. It's amazing. She, uh, she does wonderful things with craft, um, and gotta love sci-fi, so... 
Great. Awesome. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your expertise. Sorry that we didn't get to everything that we wanted to talk about because there's so much to talk about on this, but you are a gem and we love you. I love you guys too. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. That was amazing. And we love all of it. (laughs) Uh, You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at season of the bee. We're also on Facebook uh, you can check us out at seasonofthebee.com. Send us emails at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, and send us your dollars on Patreon. Woo! Yay! Love it. Love you guys. Love, Love you. you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.